Well, I'm excited about studying this book. That is the book of First Peter. Uh, it's one of my favorite books. You'd expect me to say that. I know, I know. Uh, an epistle of grace. And we'll talk why that's the case as we journey through. Ten times the word grace appears in this little letter. So it's about two, two times, a, right? Two occurrences, a, a chapter. Our author is Peter. And what do we know about Peter? How has he experienced grace in his life? (laughs) He should have done what Judas done and gone and hung himself. Really. He denied the Savior just like Judas. And yet, unlike Judas, Peter repented and there's restoration. How else has Peter shown grace? I mean, think about his life. God called him as he was a fisherman. Where else do we see grace? In the life of Peter. He's disciple. He's a, not only that, he's, he's always listed first in the laundry list of disciples. So I would suspect he's probably the leader of the group. The Lord gives them opportunities to experience some special events, right? Jeff, what else do we see? He's the first to share the gospel, really, with the Jewish audience and with the Gentile later on in chapter 10, right? Cornelius. Uh, he's, we mentioned he's privy to certain events, uh, even has his mother-in-law healed. I'm not sure if that's grace, but there it is. <laughs> no, I've got a good relationship with my mother-in-law, but uh, anyways. You know the world's greatest dilemma is watching your mother-in-law drive over a cliff in your new BMW. But anyway, oh, that's awful. Oh, that's awful. Well, grace is peppered throughout this letter, and the Peter that we knew earlier on has had a few rough edges chipped off as he pens this letter. And so we're going to be looking at this. And I, I jokingly said to some folks, I'm glad you're here because if you're not used to Carmel, we're known for roundabouts. And it can be crazy in the mornings. Uh, and some, this is very early. And you brought a friend to drive, so that was good. And uh, I did see a couple people camped out. So that's really eager. <clears throat> and, and unfortunately, some their GPS took them in the wrong direction. But uh, anyway, they'll be here, Lord willing, next time. So we are glad you're here on a Thursday. I had two people say, I came on a Tuesday. I said, oops, yep, Thursday it is. So I'm hoping this time frame works for you as we journey through. Well, let's turn. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. And let's look at this rich text. Every letter uh, in the New Testament resembles what you would expect ancient letters of that time frame. There's a particular format. Uh, this is not in your notes, but... The, the letters always begin with an opening or greeting. You know, it's usually the writer to the recipient, uh, Paul, to the church in Galatia or wherever. Uh, we're going to see that format. Then there's a thanksgiving. Then the body is the main content of the letter. And then there's a final greeting. And we see that structure with First Peter. So let's look at this. This opens up with a salutation or a, a greeting. And it follows the format you would expect in ancient writing. It says, from Peter, that's the name that was given to him, wasn't it, back in Matthew 16, an apostle of Jesus Christ. This isn't just that he was sent out. It's a technical term. In other words, I'm about to speak with authority, which is extremely important because most scholars would argue Peter's not been to the region that he's writing to. He says, to those temporarily residing... Those, it's, 
it's the word we use, diaspora. It's, it's the Christians that are scattered abroad. He says in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, the province of Asia and Bithynia. This is all, this is modern Turkey. So it's, it's all, this is, you've got Galatia, Pontius, Galatia can actually come down to here, Cappadocia. This is Asia Minor. So we're talking all of modern Turkey. And that's why most scholars would argue if Peter was there, he wasn't there very long. Most of his time was spent in Israel, today at modern Israel, Jerusalem, or as a prisoner in Rome. But he's writing to this group, and most think that he's in Rome as a prisoner, and he's hearing reports of believers in this region. And he says, you're temporarily exciting. You are chosen, that is, you're elect, according to, now watch this, the foreknowledge of God the Father, by being set apart by the Spirit for obedience and for sprinkling with Jesus Christ's blood. May grace, there it is, ten times, and peace, a word he'll use three times in this book, be yours in full measure. Let's unpack this opening as we set the stage. Uh, I, I even mentioned this in your notes, a quote uh, Shriner's in his commentary. He says, the opening greeting in First Peter is hardly a customary uh, hello. <laughs> Far from it. It's theologically rich and it's packed with truths that he's going to uh, really tease out through the entire book. <clears throat> that is, you're chosen, you're sojourners, because that's going to be very important to this group. They are under persecution. Now, I don't think to the point that they're being killed, but certainly they're being marginalized. Some scholars argue they're this region was known for the guilds, you know, the trades. Here's the electricians. Here's the plumbers. And with those guilds, usually there was pagan worship. And so the Christians are unwilling to participate in this. And that's creating some real problems for the audience. And so this opening sets the scene. And by the way, that's true with all of the letters in the New Testament. Don't skip over the first couple verses. It's very significant. I love when Paul writes to the church at Corinth. He says, to those who are sanctified, <laughs> far from it. And he's just setting them up because he's going to talk about what does it truly mean to be sanctified as you move in the book. So what we see here is that Paul highlights they're scattered abroad. And then he mentions that they are chosen. They are the elect. And notice he gives three things, highlights three things about their calling. He says, first of all, he gives us the origin, and that is the foreknowledge of God. That term does not mean God knew that you were going to respond, so he picked you. That's not how the term is used in the New Testament. It simply means he chose you. You didn't choose him. He chose you before the foundation of the world. We can read elsewhere. And I, I, I've heard people say, ah, Foreknowledge means he knew you were going to respond, and so he so graciously did it. Uh-uh, you didn't respond. He, he chose you. And in fact, I give you another reference there, 120. You can look at this at how that term is used elsewhere in First Peter. But it's clear God chose us. He chose the believers. That's the origin. The manner he does it, he then highlights. And what's the manner? By means of the what? <clears throat> the Spirit, Right? who has set you apart, the, the theological term for set apart means sanctification. That's the big 50 cent word that we'll see thrown around. And then he gives us the extent. 
It's done by the sprinkling of Jesus' blood. What do you see? The Father, the Son, and the, Holy, or the Holy Spirit, and the Son, right? You see the Trinity involved in our salvation. Very significant. He's going to come back to this time and time again. The role of the Trinity. <clears throat> and then he says, grace and peace. And again, um, that's so significant to Peter. In fact, turn to Second Peter just briefly. You have to see this. This is pretty amazing. In Second Peter 1, 2, may grace and peace be lavished on you. There it is again as he opens up the letter. Very significant, and it's also how he'll close out First Peter, the grace that comes from God, uh, as well as uh, peace from the Lord. Questions on this opening? Very significant. He's setting the readers up for what's about to transpire. Paul, to those believers, you've been, you have an unbelievable salvation, and he's going to then tease that out as we move along. Yeah, Rock. Good question. The government in Asia Minor, these are all Roman provinces. Bithynia, Cappadocia, they're all Roman provinces. So the big daddy in this region is Rome. There was previous sub-levels uh, of governments, but Rome now is in charge of everything. Rome is the proverbial, the camel gets the nose under the tent, and eventually the camel takes over the tent. That's a little how Rome is operated. Yeah, Tracy. That's a great question. Most scholars are going to argue based on the letter that our audience is predominantly Gentile, which is intriguing because we'll get to this in a minute. Peter quotes more from the Old Testament than any book of the New Testament except for Hebrews and Revelation. Well, usually when you're talking, and it's very interesting, he uses terminology that was used of Jews scattered abroad, and now he refers to Christians in that terminology. That, Like God's elect of the Old Testament, intertestament period, you too are scattered. And this world is not our home. And that's very significant where he's going with this. We're all in exile, so to speak, because we're all looking elsewhere. Thank goodness, right? And that's where he's going to go. In fact, he does it in the Thanksgiving. Let's look at this. This is the next section here of the letter. He starts in verse 3, blessed, really the word is, praise the Lord. Every paragraph in 1 Peter begins with a command, except this one. And there's one other, but uh, you could argue that one. This one for sure, blessed be, and then uh, this is not uh, a sentence you would give to first year Greek students because it goes all the way to verse uh, nine. Uh, this is all one sentence. Blessed be the God and Father. Actually, you could argue it goes all the way to 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he gave us new birth. It sounds a lot like Ephesians 2. A new birth into a living hope. It's not dead. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, that is into an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That is, it won't decay, it's not immoral, and it won't die, it won't grow old. It is reserved in heaven for you. 
my English majors? What tense or what uh, voice is being used? Is that active or passive for reserved in heaven? It's passive. And in Hebrew scripture, it's called a divine passive. It's a, it's a way of you, not using the Lord's name, but saying the Lord is responsible. We are so blessed. Who's the blessing? Who's the doing the blessing? God. Who's reserved this salvation for you and heaven for you? God. Who by God's power are protected through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This brings you great joy. You got great mercy, great joy. Although you may have to suffer for a short time in various trials. You know, break out into this next section. But let me first unpack this beginning of this opening, this thanksgiving, I should say, that he gives. And the first section here, and I've broken this down into three, and you can see this in your notes. The first of these is a promise that is given. And he tells us this gracious God has given us first a living hope. And we mentioned this in the text. Hope becomes a key word in this book Uh, We have a salvation or a resurrection that's guaranteed because it's built upon Christ's resurrection, which is very important here in the letter. It's not empty. Our hope is not in vain. It's sure. And in fact, he then links that directly with the hope with a secure inheritance. Now, this is where it gets exciting. If uh, you go, why did I come this morning? Hopefully this will encourage you. On the top of page two... I quote Howard Marshall and he states, to have something as an inheritance, we're not talking about a legal claim. And that's how we think as an American living in 2018. That's not how they would have seen it in the first century. Think of the prodigal son, all right? To have something as an inheritance indicates that we are already named in the will as those who are appointed to inherit it and that in a sense, our name is already on it. it's kind of like going through the house and putting your name on everything you want, right? It's not too kosher, but I've heard of families doing that. Uh, We have an inheritance that has our name on it. In other words, and I mentioned this in your notes, it's the strongest possible terms that Peter can state, your salvation is sure, it is certain. There's nothing that's going to strip it. If you did nothing to earn it, I will argue you can do nothing to lose it. This is very important. In fact, the terms, as we just saw, it's imperishable, it's undefiled, unfaded. And then he uses the word protected, which means to put a shield around something. It's been guarded. And it's stored in God's treasure house in heaven. It's it's as secure as you can get. And, and he's going to highlight this as we move through the book, because if you're under persecution and you're pulling out my fingernails, I'm going to begin to wonder if this really is the right thing that I've done. <laughs> Did I select the right button when I chose to follow Jesus? Is this really true? And if it is, you know, <laughs> I mean, I hope it's true. You know, can I lose it in the midst of, of all the anguish? And, and that, these are the questions that are percolating in the audience as Peter writes this. And I have no doubt representatives from these regions have told Peter, listen, people are struggling in their faith. Things are not well. They're being persecuted. And Peter then, under the inspiration of the Spirit, pins this little letter to encourage them. 
I had a question there in your notes. There's even a gap. But how does the Lord protect the saints? Because the text tells us that, right? Who by God's power are protected through faith. How does he protect us? Well, there's obvious answers, but yes, yeah. <clears throat> How does he ensure our inter- eternal life? It's in his power. Yep. Yes, Bill. The Holy Spirit is a down payment, which we've already seen a little bit to that end. His reputation is at stake, isn't it? I mean, he just said it. So, I mean, if if I... Many of you guys are in business. If you promise X, Y, and Z and you don't deliver, you may have a lawsuit on your hands. Um, you know, used to, you you know, if Tupperware says it, you can trust it, right? Uh, if the Lord says it, it's guaranteed, right? And Jamie. Mm-hmm. It's evidence that he's he has a lot invested. Yep. And so the text tells us in breaking out here in song about our salvation, he says, listen, first of all, this first section is that indeed we have a promise that's been given and it's rooted in God and God alone. His reputation is at stake. Then he moves to the praise that is guaranteed or granted. And that's this joy. Look at verse six. This brings you great joy, and he's going to bookend this section with joy, so watch this. And remember, where is Peter most likely? In prison. Who's he writing to? A group who are struggling. Joy is not the first term I think I would want to hear. I don't know about you, right? He says, although you may have to suffer, yeah, that's right, for a short time and various trials, such trials show the proven character of your faith. Which is more valuable than gold, gold that is tested by fire, even though it's passing away. I love that. The Lord doesn't have a gold reserve in heaven, but he does have a storehouse of your inheritances. (laughs) Because you're far more precious than any gold. The Lord can make that all day, right? We'll bring praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. That ties in with verse 5. In other words, we're taking this all the way to the end. And we'll see it two more times in 1 Peter until Jesus Christ is revealed. You have not seen him, but you love him. You do not see him now, but you believe in him. And so you rejoice. I mean, all the more a group that they weren't there when Jesus walked on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. They never sat down at his feet. They've heard the gospel secondhand. I'm reminded of uh, Hebrews, you know, they're second generation, third generation believers, um, but they're trusting, they're believing. Sound familiar? He says, but so that you can rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy because you're attaining the goal of your, sal- your faith, that is the salvation of your souls. It's interesting in the context of suffering, which again, We're only in the thanksgiving. This is the prayer at the beginning of a letter. It's setting us up for what we're going to see in the next four chapters. It's interesting what he says about suffering. First of all, it will happen. The good news is it's not permanent. It's brief, and it's periodical, but it will happen. Secondly, he tells us it happens in various forms. 
And some of you are going, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. You know, I share Christ at work and I've, I've had some things happen that aren't pleasant. Third, suffering occurs, and this is difficult to see, but it's that the Lord allows it. Why? It's for your faith. The good news is, he, he's ultimately in charge, isn't it? He's handling this. <clears throat> and notice that what else he says about our suffering, it's to bring God glory. It's not about us. It's about the Lord. I think of John's words, he, Jesus, must increase, I must decrease. And that's what we're dealing with. And then finally, and I love this. Notice what ultimately brings the believer joy in verse 8. It, it, it's not the, the promise of heaven. It, it's not a set of circumstances. It's seeing Jesus. Isn't that great? It's about seeing the Lord. And that's what he said. Look at what he says. Verse 8, you have not seen him, but you love him. You not see him now, but you believe. So you can rejoice. Why? When you see him. Isn't that awesome? This is what it's about. It's about Christ. And this is what we long to see. Questions on this section? You've got a promise. It's your salvation. And in the midst of living out your salvation, know you're going to suffer, but it's all for God's glory and the joy that you're going to receive when you see Jesus in the midst of this. He went before you. He's ensured your salvation through his blood, right? He bought you, and you need to rejoice. Well, then he closes out this section of the Thanksgiving, which is a little interesting. And here we see his focus on the Old Testament. Verse 10, concerning this salvation. So we're anchoring back. This is what this whole blessed be God of our Lord Jesus Christ bit is about, right? The prophets who predicted the grace, don't miss that, that would come to you, search and investigated carefully. They probed into what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified beforehand about the sufferings appointed for Christ and his subsequent glory. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Moses, they all look to this. Reminds me of Hebrews 11. But watch the next sentence. If this doesn't make your day, I don't know what does. Verse 12, they were shown that they were serving not themselves, but you. You, the church. (laughs) Is that incredible? Isaiah writes, ultimately in service of you, the church, in regards to things you now announced to you through those who proclaim the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things angels long to catch a glimpse of. Just unpack the implications here in this final section as he's talking about our salvation. First of all, the Old Testament, and we're going to come back to this time and time again in the letter, the Old Testament is relevant for the church. It's extremely important. I don't need to tell you guys that, but uh, I've met folks who... They're only concerned about the last 27 books of the canon. Uh, No, 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 no. The Old Testament is extremely relevant. And we've just told you earlier, Peter's going to mine the Old Testament numerous times uh, as he writes this book. Secondly, even the angels are interested in what's going on here with the church. I wrote down a couple texts, but Luke 15 says, The angels rejoice over a sinner who repents. There's a party in heaven going on when someone comes to Christ. They marvel at it. Which 
should immediately you should ask, why would they marvel over that? When they have a front row seat to everything, why would they marvel? I'll let you think through that. That's a significant question. Third thing that we see, via the Holy Spirit, just as it governed the Old Testament writers, it's governing the new. In other words, the message that we have from Genesis to Revelation, we see continuity, and I would argue we see accuracy. Jesus said at Matthew 5, not a jot or tittle will pass away. It's it's, it's all going to transpire just as it's been stated. Uh, I had an 18-year-old individual come up to me on Sunday and said, you know, it's really, I I think it's wrong that uh, we mandate that same-sex folks can't get married and can't adopt children. And she and I said, well, I said, um, do you think it's wrong then if a 37-year-old marries an 11-year-old girl? Oh, that's just awful. I said, why? She goes, well, it just is. I said, ultimately, you have an ethical system that's egoistic. You are the determiner of truth. This is what we have to govern our lives by. Some things I don't understand, but God said it, and I have to follow it, you know? And so we talked through that and wrestled with it, and uh, there was smoke coming out of the ears. I'm, I'm, I applauded her for thinking through some things, but um, we have to think through the text. What does the, the Word of God say, right? Anyway, I'm starting to preach. But <clears throat> Peter highlights it here. Right? The Holy Spirit's been involved, and in fact, they were gearing it up for what we are experiencing today. And then finally, wow, we are so blessed. I mean, this goes without saying, isn't it? To, to live in a, a period of time where the prophets served us and the angels are rejoicing over it, and, and a, a salvation that gives us intimacy into the very throne room of God. That's exciting stuff. That's just amazing. And so what a promise. And again, all of this thanksgiving here that he's just highlighted, a promise uh, and, and the, the joy that can come through that and, and how the Old Testament is, is figured into this is all setting them up for what he's going to then un- unleash in the next several chapters. Because what Peter is going to do in this book is he's going to talk about men. How are you living as a husband? How do you live in society? as a follower of Jesus. What does your salvation mean when the rubber meets the road? And that's where we're headed uh, this fall. And I'm, I'm really excited because this book is practical. Uh, it's a little pointed at times and it's a little difficult at times to accept because it, he steps on toes. But in the midst of it all, grace is just oozing out of it. Uh, as he writes, and I just love it. Well, let me give you some things to walk away with this morning. <clears throat> I think it goes without saying, but I, I teased out three things for us. First of all, the message of salvation must be central in our lives. It is as he writes. I was thinking about Re- Revelation 7. What, is, what do the throngs say around the throne? Salvation belongs to our God. You might as well learn it now that salvation's on the forefront because you'll be doing it for all eternity, right? <clears throat> learn it now. Salvation needs to be on the forefront. It's the truth of the gospel that should be driving us. <clears throat> you give a, a cup, you give a dollar, uh, you serve at the food bank or whatever you do. 
first and foremost, it's the gospel. Serving in the church, it's about the gospel. Uh, Secondly, let me give you another. That one goes without saying. Second thing here I, I see in the book is that our primary identity as believers is not defined by being an American, a Republican or Democrat, or a particular racial group. Our identity is found in Christ, right? Neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female, we are all one in Christ. And by the way, that verse is in the context of salvation. But it, it, it's very clear. Um, that, that's who we are. And, and, and that's why he can say to these folks living in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, he says, you're, you're temporarily residing. Some of them may be even citizens. Because uh, your citizenship ultimately is in heaven. And no one can strip that because God holds it. He called you, you accepted that gift, and it is stored and preserved by him. And then finally, one more. No matter what circumstance of life arises, think about this, our joy should not be tempered or eliminated. And that's hard, isn't it? You know, uh, suffering for doing good at times can be a real bummer. (laughs) Instead, the circumstances of life should enhance our joy as we reflect on our salvation, grow in our faith, and rest in a secure future. That's where we're going with this book, really. Psalm 92. Turn there just briefly. Look at this text. Psalm 92. The psalmist states in verses 4 and 5, For you, O Lord, have made me glad by what you have done. I will sing for joy the works of your hands. If nothing else this morning... 1 Peter 1, 1 through 12 reminds us, look what the Lord has done for us. If you know Jesus as your Savior now, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, wow, today's the day, right, of response. And then how does the psalmist respond after this? How great are your works, O Lord. That's, when you look at what God has done for us, wow, right? That makes you smile even at 7.45 in the morning. Well, I hope this is helpful. And again, I'm very excited about where we're going with First Peter. Uh, there, it's just a, a goldmine of truths that we're going to unleash as we um, dig out as we go along. The last page is something new that we've, we're adding to the notes. Because we've had some folks say, you know, it's great we meet on Thursday or Tuesday or whenever we're meeting. But I'd love to have something to work through the rest of the time, the rest of the week and maybe even with some other fellow that I'm meeting with from iron to iron, or, or even to share some truths with, if you're married, a spouse, or a friend, or a child. And so we're not going to collect these next week. I'm not giving a quiz, all right? Uh, we got enough on our plates, but if you just need more to do, um, I've given you some things to run with in light of the lesson today, and we're going to try to do that from now on, so you can take it or leave it. Also remember that the notes are on our website, so if you want those electronic, and I don't know if some some know this, but the notes from all of our previous sections are on there, and they are searchable, which is just a really handy-dandy thing. So if you want to look up salvation, anytime it's mentioned in notes, it pulls it up. So uh, I'm really happy for that feature that we have on the website. Well, 
There's a quote at the beginning of your notes. It says, where your pleasure is, there is your treasure. Where your treasure is, there is your heart. Where your heart is, there is your happiness, or I would argue you could use the word joy. What a salvation we have, right, guys? By God's grace and his mercy, we can find grace and peace. Comments, questions, cries of outrage, exciting stuff. I'm going to close just with prayer, but I want to read the, the concluding part of First Peter when he says, verse five, uh, 10 of chapter 5, and after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish to him belongs the power. Isn't that great? Yeah, Paul. Yeah, I would argue, I mean, Peter's about, he has to know his death is imminent. I would argue, he's, he says those in Babylon greet you in chapter 5, and I think that's a code word for Rome. We'll talk about that when we get to 5, but I believe he's writing from Rome. I think he's in prison at the time. But that doesn't strip his joy and. Paul in Philippians, who was also in prison at the time, says rejoice. And again, I say rejoice, right? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, wow, our salvation. To think that the those back at the time of Daniel or, or Isaiah or Moses or Abraham were preparing it for us and that angels rejoice when we accepted your son as our savior uh, just blows our mind. Thank you, O Father. Thank you for the grace and the mercy. Lord, be with these men this week, especially as we move into a weekend. Lord, shower them with your grace. Shower them with peace. And living in a world that's just full of hurt, full of sin, full of animosity and chaos, we are just so grateful for the rock that we stand on because of your grace. And we thank you and the one who displayed ultimate grace on that cross, our Savior, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.